Good morning, Redeemer Church. Well, I'm Pastor Dave, and today we begin what many believe to be the most beautiful chapter in all of Scripture. John Stott writes, Romans 8 is undoubtedly one of the best-known, best-loved chapters in the Bible. We'll look at Romans 9 out of the next 12 weeks. I'll preach later on as well in the spring, a couple more sermons in late spring and early summer, and we should be around the middle of Romans 12 by the end of June, and we're on pace, on target to finish all of Romans by Christmas in a total of 47 sermons. And if you're counting, this is sermon number 27. Well, before we review the book's structure, let me emphasize that there's something special happening next Saturday, February 3rd at 1 p.m. We're going to celebrate and have our 14th uh, church anniversary picnic. So Zabil Park, our normal location, we'll talk more about our anniversary next week and celebrate that. We've normally, in recent times, had our picnics on Sunday. We're going to try this one on Saturday for a couple of reasons. One, so we could dress a bit more comfortably for the, what we hope is beautiful weather. And two, it's a potluck. Now, many of you are newer to the church, but if you were a part of Redeemer in pre-COVID days, you know that Redeemer Church is world famous for our potlucks. I don't know if you knew that, but we're world famous but if, uh, with membership that includes Michelin-starred chefs and more. But if you have a picnic on Sunday, it's a bit more challenging to come here and then bring food to the picnic. So let's celebrate next Saturday. But make note of this now. Don't forget, because we can't announce it next Sunday, because if we do, it'll already have been passed. I'm bound, though, anyway, to report on the culinary delights of the picnic. And so don't miss it because you'll be sad. You'll be really, really sad. So please don't be sad. Join us next Saturday, 1 p.m. at Zabil Park. We'll have beverages. We'll have a little bit of food. Uh, but if you can bring food to share with others, that'll be great. Maybe it's something from your home country. Maybe it's something you like. You can make it, bake it. You can buy it. You can bring whatever you want. And if you can't bring something, that's okay. Just come. Now, this isn't our church's mission statement, but it's close. At Redeemer, everyone gets to eat. Okay, that's the rule. All people from all places get to eat. So come join us next week. The Lord has blessed Redeemer Church for the last 14 years. We want to celebrate with some fellowship together. Well, I want to pray as we get into God's Word in just a moment for God's Word. I also want to pray for our good friends, Pastor Ansi and Maggie, who are here in the service. If you can ra raise your hands. Where are you two? There you are. I know you don't want to raise your hands, but uh, these are dear friends, members of our church for a long, long time. Pastor Ansi was the pastor for about 17 years of the Arabic Evangelical Church in Jebel Ali. They now serve in Tbilisi, Georgia, during, doing training, equipping, hospitality, and more. Our church loves them, supports them, and so we want to pray for them and then for Romans 8. So let's pray together. <clears throat> Father God, we thank you uh, for what you've done in this church and through your word. Lord, we pray as we jump into Romans 8 that Romans 8 will change our lives. Lord, this most glorious chapter, these 39 verses, 
And as we start with the first four today, Lord, would it grip our hearts. Father, we thank you for Pastor Ansi and Maggie. We thank you for their ministry in Tbilisi, Georgia. We thank you for their ministry of hospitality, of training, of equipping, the big dreams that they have. We pray that you would provide all that they need for life, for godliness, for ministry, for ministry partners, uh, for partners with churches there. We pray, Lord, that they would grow in their love for you and for each other. And we pray that the ministry would indeed be fruitful and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's review the structure of Romans before we jump into chapter 8. Paul's headed towards Spain, but he's planning an intentional layover in Rome. He's never visited the church in Rome, but in AD 36 or, or AD 56 or 57, uh, he is going there hoping he can partner with the Romans for gospel ministry. Now, informed by my seminary professor, Jim Allman, here's the overarching main point of Romans that we've been using and talking about throughout the series, and it's this. It's that God has welcomed us into his family, so we are to welcome others into his family for the glory of God. God the Almighty, God the Holy One, God the maker of heaven and earth, God has welcomed us, sinners, into his family. And so we are to welcome others into his family for the glory of God. First 11 chapters, Paul reveals how God welcomes us into his family. And because of that welcome, chapters 12 and following tell us how we are to go and make disciples of all nations by inviting others into God's family. Bracketed by an introduction in chapter 1, a conclusion down in chapter 16, we have two main sections and some subsections. The two main sections are just breaking up that main point. <clears throat> so first section of Romans through chapter 11 is that God has welcomed us. And we've seen some of these points and sections already. First, we saw that there's condemnation for the Romans, but for the Jews, for the Gentiles, for all of us, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But then we see good news starting in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, on through the end of chapter 5. We see justification. This is good news because to be justified means to be declared righteous. It means to be saved from the wrath of God. So there's bad news, but then there's good news. And then from chapters 6 through chapters 8, we see a section on sanctification or holiness. This is growing in Christ's likeness. This is growing more and more like our Savior. Then in chapters 9 through 11, we'll soon see explanation. Now after the inclusion of both Jews and Gentiles into the kingdom of God, one might ask, well, what about God's promises to Israel? Are they null and void? Paul explains in chapters 9 through 11 that both are saved by faith in Christ. And the purposes of God don't contradict God's promises to Israel. So the first 11 chapters all together tell us how we are welcomed into the family of God in Christ. And then chapters 12 to the end of the book, we see application. We see we are to welcome others. Now all of Romans has application. All of Scripture has application. But Chapters 12 and following have specific application as to how we as the church are to live together as family 
and how we are to welcome others into that same family. Well, today we find ourselves in the last chapter on the section of sanctification, chapter 6 through 8, and we're going to begin this magnificent chapter, chapter 8. If you haven't already turned there in your Bibles or your bulletins, we're going to look at Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. We're going to spend six sermons in Romans 8. Today, again, we'll cover the first four verses. In this chapter, Paul mentions the Holy Spirit 19 times. In the previous seven chapters, Paul mentions the Spirit twice. And so we may think that Paul is a bit past due to talk about the Spirit. But Paul is going to take the whole chapter here to discuss the Spirit's work in the Christian's life. In fact, he'll show us that possessing the Spirit is really the mark of a Christian. That to be a Christian means to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. One scholar writes, the Spirit's ministry is basic to any description of what it means to be a Christian. So just like we have one main overarching point for the book, we have one overarching point for chapter 8, verses 1 through 4 today, and then we'll take that point in two sections. So if you're taking notes, here's the main <clears throat> point. Christians have absolute security of salvation through the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Number one, absolute security of salvation. Number two, through the work of God the Father, Son, and Spirit. So, number one, absolute security of salvation. Look down at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Anytime we read the word therefore in the Bible, we should ask, what is the therefore? Therefore. What is the therefore in verse 1, pointing back to. This signals that Paul is summarizing or making a conclusion based on what he's argued previously. So what is Paul pointing back to? What is the therefore pointing to? In a sense, Paul's summarizing all that he's discussed in the first seven chapters of the book. Condemnation, justification, sanctification, therefore... Well, he's most certainly elaborating on Romans 7, verse 6, where Paul talks about the new way of the Spirit. It also seems like he has chapter 5, verses 12 through 21 in mind. Paul uses the word condemnation twice before this, both in that section in verses 16 and 18 of chapter 5. John Stott suggests that Paul's even looking further back at that Beautiful section at the end of Romans chapter 3, the beginning of the section on justification, verses 21 to the end of the chapter. You are justified by Christ, therefore. <clears throat> However far back Paul is looking, the great truth of verse 1 is summarized in two words. We've been singing of it all morning already. Two words. No condemnation. Redeemer Church, this is incredible. To not be condemned 
means to be free from any debt or penalty. You have no charges against you if you are in Christ. You have no condemnation from God. Paul says it as firmly as he can, no. And if you're wondering here, no means no. It doesn't mean a little bit no or partially no, sometimes no, maybe most of the time no, almost no, close to always no. No, it, no means no. It means no longer is the Christian under condemnation. It is finished. Once in Christ, always in Christ. There is absolute security of salvation for the Christian. You can't fall out of favor with God. You don't have to go to bed at night in anxiety wondering what will happen to you. If you die, you can't come under God's condemnation again. This statement is comprehensive. The moment you become a Christian, that's when condemnation is gone forever. And this verdict of no condemnation, it's not just for super-Christians. Of course, there, there are no super-Christians. This verdict is not just for pastors, deacons, community group leaders. It's not only for the so-called mature Christians. It's not for older Christians who have gray and white beards like I do. It's for brand-new Christians, and it's for Christians who have walked with God for decades. It's for everyone. It's for all who have come to Christ Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We all, shame the sa we all share the same verdict, no condemnation. When you become a believer, you're no longer condemned. And the Holy Spirit comes and resides within you. It indwells you. The influence of the Spirit and the believer's life is so dominant that there's no way you can fall away. God has welcomed you into his family. There's nothing you can do to get kicked out of his family. Now, as we'll see yet again in Romans, this doesn't mean that we can now go ahead and live however we'd want to live. There was a big word you might remember that I mentioned earlier in Romans called antinomianism. That means, oh, well, we're saved. We can go ahead and live however we'd like. We're no longer under the law, so we can go on singing, sinning however we want to sin. No, Paul makes sure that we see that that's not what Jesus was teaching, and it's not what he's teaching. Salvation isn't a type of fire insurance saving us from hell to go on living a sinful life until then. In chapter 8, Paul says that if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit, and now you can't live any other way but to live for God. Christian friend, this verdict of no condemnation should be of great encouragement and comfort for you this morning. You are no longer condemned. Oh, friend, does this comfort you in dark times? When all else seems to fail, you can still have joy. You can still fight for joy. That's because as Christians, we tie our joy to Jesus and his finished work on the cross and resurrection from the dead. We tie our joy to Jesus, not to our always changing circumstances. Because, friend, our circumstances change, don't they? Day by day, hour by hour, 
Our circumstances can change from highs to lows, from goods to bads, just like a big roller coaster that goes up one second and down the other, and then up again and down the other. No, we don't tie our joy to those always changing circumstances. We tie our joy to this verdict, no condemnation. We are in Christ Jesus. That's the one great permanent circumstance that could never be taken away from you. We tie our joy to that. I wonder what you were thinking earlier when you sang the words, He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by Him at such a cost, He will hold me fast. God has saved you, and He will hold you fast to the end. Redeemer Church, don't forget this truth. The great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said, most of our troubles are due to our failure to realize the truth of this verse, Romans 8, verse 1. What do you think about what Lloyd-Jones said? Do you agree? Most of our troubles are due to our failure to realize the truth of Romans 8, 1. That verdict, no condemnation. What happens if we forget that we are no longer condemned? Well, lots of things. I could share a few here. We'll worry about our salvation, wondering, are we saved? Or have we really done enough to be saved? Have we lived a good enough life? Have we checked all the boxes? We'll struggle to live a holy life and to love God and others in response to His work, but instead we'll work out of a sense of fear, a sense of duty. We'll lack confidence in our prayers. Ultimately, when we face challenging circumstances, we'll be crushed under their weight. There'll be no light at the end of the tunnel, just dread and darkness. For those of you who are here today, you're saved, you're a follower of Christ. This is our reality, no condemnation. We no longer sit under God's judgment. But if you're here today and you don't yet follow Christ, that's not yet true of you. These words that I'm saying, this verdict in chapter 1, it's very important for you to hear, to hear out of love. The most important thing you can do today is to turn from your sins and to believe in Jesus to save you. There's nothing you can go and do because we're born sinners and we sin every day of our lives. And one sin stains the whole and one sin means we can't be in the presence of a holy God lest he cease to be holy. We need forgiveness from our sins. We need cleansing from our sins. There's nothing we can do. Something had to be done for us. Christ did that for us on the cross. We need to believe. We need to trust. We need to place our faith in Jesus. Romans 8.1 is clear. It doesn't say there is now no condemnation for everyone. Look back down at verse 1. Did you notice that? Romans 8.1. It doesn't say there's no condemnation for everyone. It says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You must turn to Christ, not by doing anything, but by believing. And when you do, you experience this union, this oneness with Christ. I read a story in a 
new book this week called Anchor for the Soul. And it was a, uh, one of the stories that I read in the book was about a little girl who was fatally allergic to bee stings. She could die from the sting of one bee. And so her parents protected her by sealing off the house with immaculate precision, sealing the, the, the doors, uh, sealing the, the windows, closing them off to the outside, creating a bee-free zone. And one day after putting their daughter to bed, they heard a loud scream, a loud screech from her room. Somehow a bee had managed to breach their defenses. Her dad sprinted to the bedroom and the little girl ran into his arms. Sure enough, hadn't stung her yet, but sure enough, there was a sinister buzz of a renegade bee in the room. Dad hugged his daughter as close as he could and, and was protecting her from danger. And in his firm embrace, she suddenly felt him wince, then relaxed. He said, everything is fine now. You're safe. And to prove his words, he took out his hand. And in the palm of his hand, the girl saw the remains of the bee's sting. Her dad had deliberately taken the sting of the bee to save and to protect his daughter. Well, friends, Christ did much more than that. That's just a small picture of what Christ has done. Christ took God's wrath in our place in the darkness of the cross. He took the fatal sting, the fatal eternal sting that we deserved so that we could be free from condemnation. Everyone who flees to Christ for salvation is forgiven. When we sin we're to look to Christ. When Satan tempts us to despair, we're to look to the cross. Jesus was condemned and faced rejection for our sins on the cross so we wouldn't have to be. And on the third day, he rose from the dead, proving that his sacrifice was good, that his sacrifice was complete, that everything he said and did was true that he was the Lord and Savior. Oh, friends, we have absolute security in our salvation. And so along with Lloyd-Jones, we can say that the great theme of Romans 8 is the security of the Christian. Christian, you can't lose your salvation. We can't lose it like we lose our keys or our wallet. And friends, this is great news. Well, verse 2 furthers the argument is why we can't lose our salvation. Look at verse 2 of Romans chapter 8. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We're not condemned because we're free. We're free. There's a kind of liberation that comes with no condemnation. We've been set free from the law of sin and death. There's a discussion on exactly what the law means here. Paul's use of the law, even in Romans, can vary. In Romans 7, Paul seems to use the law in three different ways. One, God's law or standards. Two, a general principle. Or three, a force or power. Some see here a reference to the Mosaic law, but I think Paul is using it metaphorically as he does in other places. Here the law seems to carry that third meaning. The Spirit comes to free us from the law's bondage 
in our hearts. Paul's talking about the authority or the power of sin. Scholar Doug Moose says, The law of the Spirit then denotes the authority or power exercised by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit exerts a liberating power through the work of Christ that takes us out of the realm of sin and spiritual death to which sin inevitably leads. So verse 1, we are free from the condemnation of sin. Then in verse 2, we are free from the power of sin. There's no condemnation for Christians because the Holy Spirit frees us from sin. So friends, Romans 8, just two verses in, is of great comfort to us. All of this is our reality through the work of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the second section of our main point. It's the second part of our main point. Christians have absolute security of salvation. How? Well, through the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Point number two. Look at verse three. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. God has done it because the law couldn't do it. The law can't save because it can't save. The law doesn't save because we can't fully follow the law. Verse 3 further explains what we've seen in verses 1 and 2. As we saw in Romans 7, the Mosaic law couldn't affect our righteousness. In our flesh, there was no way to obey fully God's law. Therefore, the law was unable to bring life. It's not that the law is bad. The law is not bad. It's that humans under the power of the flesh can't follow the law and practice what it says. Those of us who are in Christ are in a different possession or different position. By the work of the Holy Spirit, we can now be obedient to God. The Jews argued that Paul's teaching would lead to more sin. This is interesting. Paul's claiming the total opposite. Now, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they were arguing, Paul, you're an antinomian, Paul, you're, you're, just, you're, you're, you're just not following the law. You're, you're free in Christ, okay, and your people are just now free to do whatever in the world they want to do. Paul says, actually, it's the opposite because to be a Christian means we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Paul says it's actually the unbelieving Jews, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees. It's actually them who have no real power to uphold the law. It's actually the Christians who have the power because we have the Holy Spirit. Only those belonging to Jesus have the power to obey God's commandments. And friends, did you notice, I wonder in your community groups, when you gathered this past week as you studied Romans 8, 1 through 4, did you notice how distinctly Trinitarian these verses are? My point gives it away. But did you notice in your study the work of the whole Trinity is in display in these verses. The Father's love is displayed in verse 3. He sent His Son. We know in John 3, 16, His only Son. We sent, he sent the Son of God who's seated at His right hand. 
sends him to be born and to die. And his son Jesus came as a human in the flesh to condemn sin. And then the Spirit is at work in us. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Working in perfect harmony, one God in three persons, blessed Trinity. It's the work of the Trinity that saves us. The Father sends the Son, and then on the basis of our rescue is the death of Jesus on the cross. But then the application and benefit of the rescue is given to us by the Spirit, through the Spirit. No one benefits from the Father without the Son. No one benefits from the Father and the Son without the Spirit. Now, friends, we may not fully comprehend the Trinity, this side of eternity, finite minds, we might not fully comprehend the Trinity and any earthly illustration falls well short. But while we may not fully comprehend the magnitude of the Trinity, this side of eternity, we still can understand it correctly. Salvation is the work of our triune God. All three persons actively Rescue us from sin and bring us into new life. Therefore, our thanksgiving and worship are appropriately directed to all three, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Of the Son, Paul says, Jesus came in the likeness of flesh. And this is important here. We'll need to pause here a moment. Jesus came in the, in the likeness of sinful flesh to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins. What Paul's doing here is he's carefully balancing Jesus' full humanity with our sinfulness. Christ did indeed become fully human. He was fully God, fully human when he was born and lived here on earth. But calling the flesh sinful might suggest that Christ took on our fallen nature. If so, he wouldn't have been qualified to be our sinless redeemer. So Paul clarifies by adding the critical word in the verse, likeness. It's an important word in this section. Jesus was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh, not in sinful flesh. It's an important distinction. Unlike every other person, Christ didn't fall into sin and he didn't inherit the penalty of sin. Doug Moo writes, Christ became what we are so that we could become what he is. He took on the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus never sinned, never inherited original sin, but he took on our sin so that we could become like him. And Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. That's an interesting phrase here in Romans 8. It's an interesting statement. It seems that Paul is saying the flesh is where sin was condemned. Friends, this is the cross. This is the cross where Jesus was presented as a sin offering. There he absorbed. He took on all his people's sins. Remember that word propitiation from chapter 3 of Romans. Jesus took on the full wrath of God upon himself. Jesus condemned sin by dying on the cross. A surprising Savior, the people of, uh, of, of, the, of the day, the Jews of the day, they were awaiting a military victor to take down evil, bad Rome. But Christ came to us in weakness, 
Christ came to them 2,000 years ago in weakness, not in strength. Not as a military victor, but as would look to them as one who is weak. Now, while reading a book these last couple weeks, I came across a story from ancient Rome. In 1857, this was discovered. Italian builders were, were doing some excavation. They were doing some work. And they unearthed the remains of a house dating back to the emperor Caligula, who ruled from 37 to 41 AD. On examination, they discovered in their excavation some crude graffiti of a human-like figure being nailed to the cross, but with a head of a donkey next to the figure who's meant to represent Jesus stands a young man who's raising his hand in worship to the man on the cross. Underneath is the inscription, Alex Amenos worships his God. Now this was sarcastic, of course. Who worships a God who dies the most humiliating death possible? This is no powerful God, a shameful one, a donkey. What's well, true? No other religion has a weak Savior. No other religion has a dying Savior. No other religion says weakness is the way. No distinctly Christian theology says God came to us in weakness to save us. But every other religious system in all of the world and all the history of the world says that we must somehow try to make our way to God. So it's like a ladder that you climb one step after another, trying to climb to God. The problem is that ladder is infinitely high, and we can never reach God because we're sinners, we're imperfect. So yes, Christianity teaches that weakness is the way, and thankfully so, because it means that God came to us. His incarnation, the story of Christmas, the story of one month ago that Jesus came to us in the flesh. Jesus walked this earth. Jesus died a shameful death. On the cross, he humbled himself even to the point of death, even on the cross. This was no earthly military victor, but this was a cosmic, heavenly victor. God did all of this for a specific purpose. Look at verse 4. The final verse in our text. He did all this in order. Here's a purpose statement. In order so that. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Verse 4 conveys the purpose of Christ's condemnation. It's to enable believers to follow God, to love God, to fulfill the law. Sanctification, holiness, to be more like Jesus. We don't obey God fully, but we obey God more and more as life goes on. We're not sinless, but we sin less. There's not perfect holiness. That's a false teaching. We're never getting to a place of perfect holiness in this life, but we grow in holiness. We become more like Jesus. We fight sin more and more. We learn more about God. Our love for him grows. 
not in our strength, but because we strive for holiness with the Holy Spirit residing within us. Now, this is not obeying the Levitical laws that we see in the Old Testament. We don't sacrifice lamb up front here. You see the communion table set up. You would be a bit surprised if next week we had an altar set up here and I bring Fluffy the lamb up front and slaughter Fluffy right here in the service. No, we don't practice those Old Testament sacrifices in the Levitical law anymore because those sacrifices were fulfilled in the one great permanent sacrifice of Jesus. They were foreshadowing that final sacrifice of our Savior. But we do follow God's moral law. We think of the Ten Commandments. Now, all of them were reiterated by Jesus, except for the Sabbath, of which Jesus is a fulfillment of the Sabbath himself. But we read the Sermon on the Mount, and we, we read of Jesus' teachings. Christ died not just so we'd be free from condemnation of the law, but also for our holiness, for our, our obedience, for our ability to live life for God. The moral law has not been abolished must be fulfilled. Of course, law obedience doesn't save us, but it's the fruit of our salvation. Sanctification is the fruit of our justification. Justification, our salvation, our declaration of righteousness, the Spirit coming to reside within us, that must lead to sanctification. How do you know someone's truly a believer? Well, certainly they confess with their mouth. Romans chapter 10, they must believe and repent. But we see their fruit Time will tell. We see their life. We see their actions. We can see change, tangible change in their hearts. Holiness is the work of the Holy Spirit. Romans 7 says we can't keep the law because of indwelling sin. Romans 8 says we can because of the indwelling spirit. But it is a fight. It is a battle. We saw Paul, talk about that at the end of Romans 7, this fight that the believer has. It's not easy, is it? Yes, we have the Spirit within us, but it's a struggle. It's a battle. But friends, we fight, we fight, and we fight. And we know we can fight because we have the Spirit. So our freedom from the law is not our freedom to disobey it. The opposite is true. With God saving us through His Son and the Spirit residing within us, we as Christians, we delight in pleasing God. We delight in His law. Christians fulfill the righteous requirement of the law by keeping it through the Spirit's enablement. Well, some argue that this is speaking of Jesus' work here in fulfilling the law for Christians, but note that Paul doesn't write that the law is fulfilled for us, but that it might be fulfilled in us. Now, with the Spirit, we are now free to live for God. We walk not according to the flesh, but the Spirit. Well, how do we do this? We could go on for some time. We, we do what we sang last week. We turn our eyes upon Jesus. We turn our eyes to Him. One of the great helps of the Spirit is to turn our eyes, to turn our gaze to the cross. John Stott reminds us of the relationship between the cross and the vitality of the Christian life. When he says the cross is a blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled, but we have to get near enough to that fire for its sparks to fall on us. It means we must get near to our Savior. It means we must stay near to him. Oh, friend, do you marvel at the cross? 
you marvel at the cross or as talk about Jesus and the cross and the gospel has become a bit mundane, maybe a bit boring to you. You think, oh, that's the stuff for the junior Christians. That's the stuff for the new believers. Or that's just the message uh, to get you saved. And as a believer, as a believer who's been walking with God for decades now, I've moved on to a more advanced message. So friends, there's nothing more advanced, there's nothing more important than the good news of Jesus Christ, death on the cross, and resurrection from the dead. The gospel, there's nothing more important than that. We don't move beyond it. We don't move from it. We don't turn away from it. No, we turn to it. We turn to Christ and the cross. So friends, how's your heart? toward Christ. Remember this, our joy in Christ comes not from our performance, but from our proximity. Not sure who said this, I've heard it somewhere, but just to elaborate, our joy in Jesus doesn't come from how well we perform the Christian life, but from our proximity to our God. Are you near to Him? Are you looking to God in your darkest moments? Are you looking to the cross and remembering what Jesus did to save you so that you wouldn't experience death, but eternal life. I read a story shared by Pastor Paul Millard of a postman. This postman was terrified by this big dog that was on his route, and he would open the gate, and then the first time upon entry, he was terrified of this huge, growling, barking dog. But he soon noticed that the dog was attached to a chain, which was attached to a big concrete post driven into the ground. So as he walked to deliver the mail, he realized that if he just stuck to the path, even though the dog could make his approach to him, the dog could never reach him. So every morning when he went through the gate, he didn't look at the dog, he didn't look at the chain, but he looked at that post, and if that big concrete post was still driven into the ground, he realized it remained unmoved. He realized he was safe. My friends, we walk through a world full of danger. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus. In his cross and resurrection, it's, it's like that post driven into the ground. My friends, we must keep our eyes on our Savior. We fight sin by looking to Jesus, by remembering what he's done. We're reminded that earthly pleasure pales in comparison with heavenly treasure. We're reminded that we'll be face to face with our triune God one day. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit for all eternity gathered together with the saints from all times and all places. We know a day is coming when Jesus will return and come back for his people and will make all wrong things right. So Christian friend, fight for holiness. We can do this. You have all you need to do so. You have the Holy Spirit residing inside of you. You don't have to sin like you did last night 
or last year. You have the Spirit inside you. You have access to God's Word. You're with God's people. So read, study, pray, memorize, confess, and look to Christ. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Friends, that's what we're going to do here in just a moment as we take the Lord's Supper, as we take communion. That's what we're doing, or one of the things we're doing when we take communion is looking to Christ, looking to the cross. Communion, in fact, is meant to be a visual picture of what Jesus has done for us. It's an ongoing celebration of our right standing with God through Christ. It's a demonstration of our unity, too, that we together with other brothers and sisters have been saved in Christ. The bread, which we'll hold in our hands in a moment, symbolizes Christ's perfect life. And then the cup, which we will hold, symbolizes his shed blood, his death on our behalf. He was the perfect sacrifice. Paul instructs us in 1 Corinthians that the meal is not to be taken alone. When taken at homes, we take it when the congregation is gathered. Communion reminds us of our salvation in Jesus and our unity that we together have experienced union with Christ. So if you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, we encourage you to let the bread and cup pass you by in just a moment as it's passed and just to sit back and to reflect on the good news you've heard today. That if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, turn from your sins, that verdict that hangs over the head of Christians, no condemnation, that that too can be true of you, even today, even from your seat. But if you've repented of your sins and you believed in Jesus and believe in the same gospel you've heard preached today, if you're a baptized Christian, then let's celebrate our salvation together. God has united himself to us. He's united us to himself and to each other. So before we take part, let's move our moment of silent reflection from the very end of our service to right now. And let's take a moment to rejoice in the quietness of our hearts that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So let's take that moment now. Father, thank you for the gift of salvation. Thank you for unifying us. Thank you for bringing us together, sinners from around the world, now bonded by something stronger than our passports. Today we have the privilege of celebrating a taste of what eternity will be like, when we will forever sing, feast, and praise you together with believers from all times and all places. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.